This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer.
empty spaces What are we living for? Abandoned places I guess we know the score
There is no pride in indoctrinating children in schools. There is no pride in stripping parents of their right to protect their children. There is no pride in sexualizing children at drag shows. There is no pride in mutilating and sterilizing children in the name of gender-affirming care. This June, what are you proud of? Because we have some issues that we need to talk about. We're fighting back from inside the community. Join Gays Against Groomers in the battle against radical gender ideology that is destroying our youth. Ah, that's funny, Brett. <laughs> hey, PTR. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Brett Keen, and you are listening and watching the Brett Keen Show. Tonight, we've got some good stuff. TTR has got some great topics we're going to be listening to and discussing. And uh, TTR, how's your day been before we get into it? Uh, it's been pretty good. Just relaxing after a long week of work, enjoying uh, video games and prepping for this live stream. And also hoping that now that I got my computer plugged directly into the modem next to me through my Ethernet cord, that I won't have any issues like the last two weeks. Were you able to uh, connect your uh, your stream? Yep. says I'm live on my channel right now. Oh, wow. That's cool. Oh, yeah. It says something neat up at the top. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Yep. So the TTOR is going to be hosting the Brett Keen show tonight. <laughs> no, I did not hijack Brett's channel. He's just letting me do it. <laughs> no, I've always enjoyed what you've had to say. I always loved your videos. I think it's time for Brett Keen to sit back and listen to some good stuff and have a good discussion with you. So what's our first topic and what is the inspiration? Well, for a long time now, I've been very fascinated by the stories in the Bible regarding King Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel and his friends. And I've also been interested in the prophecies around Cyrus the Great that God issued before Cyrus was ever born, and yet it accurately predicted what he was going to do as far as his military conquest goes and how he was going to free God's people from captivity and let them go back to the Holy Land to rebuild their temple. 
So I've been wanting for a long time to make videos on my channel talking about those things, but I never got around to actually doing it, especially when I had this whole change of occupation recently. And so I figured, hey, as a live stream topic tonight, why not talk about that particular thing? We're going to be talking about how God sometimes uses non-believers in order to accomplish his will. And we're going to look first at the people in particular I mentioned, King Nebuchadnezzar, also known as Nebuchadnezzar II, and we'll be looking at Cyrus the Great. But then after we look at the Bible stuff around those guys, uh, we'll get into some more contemporary, maybe even personal examples, maybe even some examples that you wouldn't think about for how God uses non-believers to accomplish his will. So before we go into the more modern part of that affair, let's get into the issue, the stories of Cyrus the Great and King Nebuchadnezzar. Now let me go ahead and prepare my screen. Oops, that's not it. The screen share. Do, 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 do. Yes, we're going to go ahead. Okay, we'll do entire screen. All right. Uh, allow. All right. Can you see my entire screen? All right. Can you see Bible Gateway on the screen? Yeah, it's coming through clear there, guy. By the way, your camera and sound is perfect. There's been no issue. Good. I have to briefly consult my notes. Ah, yes. That's what we have this first passage up for. When King Nebuchadnezzar was about to go to Jerusalem, to Israel, and basically lay waste to all of them and haul the best of them off to captivity for 70 years, there were a lot of people in Jeremiah's time who were saying, oh, yeah, yeah, King Nebuchadnezzar is going to come, but he's not going to overtake you. He's not going to destroy your nation. He's not going to defeat you in battle. You're going to defeat him, and there's all this glorious stuff is going to happen. And so. The prophet Jeremiah, since he was actually speaking from the Lord, unlike these false prophets, decided to correct the record. And we see that correction of the record here in Jeremiah 27, 1 through 11, which says the following. Early in the reign of Zedekiah, son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. This is what the Lord said to me. Make a yoke out of straps and crossbars and put it on your neck. Then send word to the kings of Edom, Moab, Ammon, Tyre, and Sidon through the envoys who have come to Jerusalem to Zedekiah, king of Judah. Give them a message for their masters and say, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Tell this to your masters. With my great power and outstretched arm, I made the earth and its people and the animals that are on it, and I give it to anyone I please. Now I will give all your countries into the hands of my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. I will make even the wild animals subject to him. All nations will serve him and his son and his grandson until the time for his land comes. Then many nations and great kings will subjugate him. If, however, any nation or kingdom will not serve Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, or bow its neck under his yoke, I will punish that nation with the sword, famine, and plague, declares the Lord, until I destroy it by his hand. So do not listen to your prophets, your diviners, your interpreters of dreams, your mediums, or your sorcerers who tell you you will not serve the king of Babylon. 
They prophesy lies to you that will only serve to remove you far from your lands. I will banish you and you will perish. But if any nation will bow its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him, I will let that nation remain in its own land to till it and to live there, declares the Lord. So something that a lot of people gloss over when they read the stories about Nebuchadnezzar and the Israelites being taken into exile in Babylon, they forget this prophecy from Jeremiah where God literally calls King Nebuchadnezzar his servant, even though King Nebuchadnezzar was not only not a follower of God, but he actually followed the fake gods of Babylon. But the way that Nebuchadnezzar was God's servant was in this way. God was going to use him to judge the Israelites for their constant and never-ending rebellion against him and his commands by having Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army come in, destroy their nation, and take the best of them off into captivity. And as we saw in the last uh, few verses, God made it clear that if you listened to these false prophets who were saying that you would not serve under Nebuchadnezzar and you try to stand against him, you would all be destroyed, and this was with God's approval and by Nebuchadnezzar's hand. So the whole destruction of Jerusalem and Israel that led to the Babylonian exile for the Jews, that was, in a sense, preordained. That was something God said was going to happen, and there was nothing you were going to be able to do about it, and it was actually his will that Nebuchadnezzar would conquer them and take the best of them off to captivity in Babylon. Now, so, so uh, TTR, what you're saying is this is a man that did not believe in God, but God seen him as basically a, a useful tool or a, a way to, you're implying that God will actually protect some non-believers in order to make something actually happen, a conclusion that he wills. Yes, essentially. If there's something that his will determines that a non-believer needs to do, as far as it serving his greater will and plan, then yes, he will do that, as we're seeing with Nebuchadnezzar here, and as we'll see later when we talk about Cyrus the Great. But I'm sure some people are thinking, okay, nice revelation, Jeremiah, but what happened to you when the Babylonians actually came to conquer everybody? Well, we see in Jeremiah, actually, you know what, let me... Uh, let me just start with verse 1 through 14 so that we can get the bigger picture of what happened to Jeremiah when the conquering of Israel came by the Babylonians. <clears throat> we'll just read Jeremiah 39, 1 through 14. That's the whole account, only four paragraphs. In the ninth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, marched against Jerusalem with his whole army and laid siege to it. And on the ninth day of the fourth month of Zedekiah's eleventh year, the city wall was broken through. Then all the officials of the king of Babylon came and took seats in the middle gate. Negril Sherezir of Samgur, uh, Nebo Sarsekim, a chief officer, Nergal Sharazir, a high official, and all the other officials of the king of Babylon. When Zedekiah, king of Judah, and all the soldiers saw them, they fled. They left the city at night by way of the king's garden through the gate between the two walls and headed toward the Arabah. 
But the Babylonian army pursued them and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. They captured him and took him to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, at Riblah in the land of Hamath, where he pronounced sentence on him. There at Riblah, the king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and also killed all the nobles of Judah. Then he put out Zedekiah's eyes and bound him with bronze shackles to take him to Babylon. The Babylonians set fire to the royal palace and the houses of the people and broke down the walls of Jerusalem. Nebuzaradan, commander of the imperial guard, carried into exile to Babylon the people who remained in the city, along with those who had gone over to him and the rest of the people. But Nebuzaradan, the commander of the guard, left behind in the land of Judah some of the poor people who owned nothing, and at that time he gave them vineyards and fields. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had given these orders about Jeremiah through Nebuzaradan, commander of the imperial guard. Take him and look after him. Don't harm him, but do for him whatever he asks. So Nebuzaradan, the commander of the guard, Nebuchadnezzar, a chief officer, Negril Sharazir, a high official, and all the other officers of the king of Babylon, sent and had Jeremiah taken out of the courtyard of the guard. They turned him over to Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, to take him back to his home, so he remained among his own people. So... We see in a brief description how the fall of Jerusalem went down, and we see that as God's reward to Jeremiah for faithfully prophesying what was going to actually happen, he had Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire spare the prophet and don't harm him, give him whatever he wants, let him be of his own people, leave him in peace. So I'd say he got a prophet's reward for being a faithful and true prophet of the Lord. So in case you're wondering, what happened to Jeremiah when the fall of Jerusalem went down as the Lord prophesied through him? Well, now you know. And knowing is half the battle. Hmm. So do you, uh, you're bringing up uh, non-believers in the, uh, in the ancient times and days and all that that God has used. Do you believe that any of the things that some atheists do nowadays is useful to God that he... Uh, actually has some kind of will yes i do have some thoughts on that being true but i want to wait till later to share what those thoughts are because right now we're focusing on king nebuchadnezzar because if you look at history king nebuchadnezzar is not arguably the greatest king who ever lived but he had according to god's own words as we're going to see here in a bit in the scriptures the greatest kingdom that will ever exist in human history until the Lord comes back and establishes his own. So I'm going with Nebuchadnezzar first for discussion because he's arguably the greatest king ever who had the greatest empire and kingdom ever. And we can see that he, even he was being used by God as an instrument of judgment upon the Israelites and as an instrument for his other purposes. And one of the things I was going to look at in the book of Daniel was that God revealed to Nebuchadnezzar personally that Nebuchadnezzar would be the greatest king over the greatest kingdom in human history. And that's what Daniel chapter 2, verses 1 through 47 is about. And this story I find very fascinating for a lot of different reasons. 
and we're going to read it in its entirety so that we can refresh the memories of those watching who may not remember or don't know this story. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had a dream that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king, May the king live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will interpret it. The king replied to the astrologers, This is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. Once more, they replied, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will interpret it. Then the king answered, I am certain that you are trying to gain time because you realize that this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me the dream, there is only one penalty for you. You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. So then tell me the dream and I will know that you can interpret it for me. So I want to say at this point that obviously King Nebuchadnezzar had a lot of yes men in his circles, and he obviously was not a fan of having yes men, because only someone who doesn't like yes men, who will tell you what you want to hear, would ever make these kind of stipulations for interpreting his dream. Only someone who is tired of yes men being around him would say, okay, I had this dream that disturbs me, but I'm not going to tell you about it. You have to tell me what the dream was and then interpret it. And obviously these yes men couldn't handle that request because they didn't have that kind of divine inspiration to figure out what his dream was. The astrologers answered the king, there is no one on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among humans. This made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death, and men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put the de to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. He asked the king's officer, why has the king issued such a harsh decree? Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went into the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with, it, with him. I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. Then Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon, and said to him, Do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king, and I will interpret his dream for him. 
Arioch took Daniel to the king at once and said, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. The king asked Daniel, also called Belshazzar, are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel replied, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you were lying in bed are these. As your majesty was lying there, you your mind turned to things to come, and the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than anyone else alive, but so that your majesty may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. Your majesty looked, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream, and now we will interpret it to the king. Your majesty, you are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands, he has placed all mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds in the sky. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold. After you, another kingdom will arise inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything, and as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom, yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. Just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. When King Nebuchadnezzar fell pro then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor in order that an offering and incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. So one of the things that I noticed when I was doing some research into the historical King Nebuchadnezzar in preparation for this stream was that basically all the mainstream legacy, you know, institutions 
said, oh, yeah, yeah, there was a King Nebuchadnezzar, and yeah, 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 he really did destroy Jerusalem and take the, those people into exile. But all this stuff about his dream and threatening to kill all the wise men and the passages I'm going to read next after this is done, uh, those never, those were just literature. Those things didn't really happen. You know, the Jews who wrote the book of Daniel, they, they had a negative opinion of the king, and so they put him in a negative light. The problem with that argument when you read the passage we just read is that we just saw the God of the Bible declare that King Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom is the greatest kingdom that will ever exist in human history. If I were the Jews and I didn't like King Nebuchadnezzar and I wanted to create an account of him that painted him in the negative light, why would I have my God say that King Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom is the greatest kingdom that will ever exist in human history? You know? <laughs> That's an excellent point. Like, why would you do that? I mean, typically, if you're going to make up a story to make someone look bad, you're not going to have the God you claim exists painting the person you're trying to make look bad as being the greatest king of the greatest kingdom that will ever exist in human history. It's just... It's not logical at all. And yet that's exactly what we see here in this account, which I think the principle of embarrassment would be at play here. Because on one hand, if in a certain way, it's kind of embarrassing for the Jews to have to write down and preserve the words of Daniel, which is that according to God himself, King Nebuchadnezzar was his servant when he destroyed Jerusalem and he was the greatest king of the greatest kingdom in human history. It's kind of embarrassing for the Jews to have to preserve these writings and revelations of God. And yet, that's exactly what we have in our hands today. So I have no doubt that this particular account happened just because of the fact that if the Jews were making up a story about Nebuchadnezzar, that this is not the one they'd make up. <laughs> but. Even though God claimed that King Nebuchadnezzar was his servant, and even though he said that King Nebuchadnezzar was the greatest king of the greatest kingdom that will ever exist in human history, God was not afraid to give King Nebuchadnezzar more than one slice of humble pie in order to keep his ego in check. Because as we see in the passages we're about to read, King Nebuchadnezzar, because he's the greatest king of the greatest empire in human history, his ego kind of got inflated and he started to think of himself basically as equal to God, as we'll see in Daniel 4. But before we get to Daniel 4, let's read about the first slice of humble pie that took place in Daniel chapter 3, verses 1 through 29, which is the story, the account of the image of gold and the blazing furnace. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, Nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. 
Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown to a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews among you who you have set over the affairs of of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, a pipe and all kinds of music if you are ready to fall down and worship the image i made very good but if you do not worship it you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace then what god will be able to rescue you from my hand shadrach meshach and abednego replied to him king nebuchadnezzar we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter if we are thrown into the blazing furnace the god we serve is able to deliver us from it and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand but even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, Weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, Certainly, your majesty. He said, Look, I see four men walking around the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who had sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned to piles of rubble for no other god can save in this way now this story i just read is one of the most hilarious in a way slices of humble pie I've ever seen served up to anyone much less the greatest king of the greatest empire in human history challenges god's servants who are serving as, as his officials 
you know, bow down, worship me when the music plays. And if you don't, I'll throw you in the fire. And what God can save you then? It's almost like God was, you know, there hearing all this and said, hold my beer. And then not only did God prevent them from being killed by the fire, but as we saw at the end of the account, when they came out of the fire, there was no evidence whatsoever on them that they had ever been in any fire at all. It's like they had never been thrown in. And not only is that miraculous, that's one of those things that humbled Nebuchadnezzar and helped him to remember, oh yeah, there's a God above me who rules over the earth and he allowed me to have this position. And if he doesn't want some people to die by my hand, there's nothing I can do about it. So an amazing slice of humble pie that King Nebuchadnezzar was served on this occasion. But unfortunately, like most humans, who have sin issues. We usually don't have a sin issue once and then a miracle happens and then we don't ever have it again. Sometimes the issue comes up again and God needs to give out more humble pie. And unfortunately for King Nebuchadnezzar, as great as he was, he had this problem too, which is what leads into Daniel chapter four, which I was looking at it before the stream. And I thought, you know, we just need to read this in its entirety because there's nothing really we can leave out here. So starting in verse 1 of Daniel chapter 4, this is the last uh, account of King Nebuchadnezzar we'll read on the stream. King Nebuchadnezzar, to the nations and peoples of every language who live in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at my home, at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. When the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners came, I told them the dream, but they could not interpret it for me. Finally, Daniel came into my presence, and I told him the dream. He is called Belshazzar, after the name of my God, and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. I said, Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here is my dream. Interpret it for me. These are the visions I saw while lying in bed. I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it, the wild animals found shelter, and the birds lived in its branches. From it, every creature was fed." In the visions I saw while lying in bed, I looked, and there before me was a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, cut down the tree and trim off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but let the stump and its roots bound with iron and bronze remain in the ground in the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass by for him. The decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict so all, that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over, sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowest of people. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. 
Now, Belshazzar, tell me what it means, for none of the wise men in my kingdom can interpret it for me, but you can, because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, also called Belshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Belshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. Belshazzar answered, My lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. The tree you saw, which grew large and strong with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the wild animals, and having nesting places in its branches for the birds. Your majesty, you are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky, and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. Your majesty saw a holy one, a messenger, come down from heaven and saying, Cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the wild animals until seven times pass by for him. This is the interpretation, your majesty, and this is the decree the Most High has issued against my lord, the king. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree of its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be then that your prosperity will continue. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High and I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what, you, what have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven, because everything he does is right, and all his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. And since you played that pride stuff in the opening of the show, Brett, I found that kind of convenient because King Nebuchadnezzar struggled with a different kind of pride. 
he struggled with the pride of his own ego, getting too full of himself in the most literal sense, to the point where he was basically declaring himself to be God. And so God decided, <laughs> here's some humble pie for you. I'm going to make you live like an animal for a long period of time until you acknowledge that I am most high and supreme over all. And when you do that, then I'll give you back all your kingdoms and your honor and your glory and your position. And it all goes exactly that way. Now, what's funny when I was doing preparation for this stream is that I actually found a history article talking about King Nebuchadnezzar. And it actually said that there is a Babylonian document that talks about a king who ended up going off into the wilderness for several years. And then eventually he was restored to his position as king over Babylon. But this article claimed that, no, 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 it wasn't King Nebuchadnezzar who did it. It was the king that came after him. Now, a lot, right. of, unbe a lot of unbelievers <laughs> would look at that and say, see, see, the story may have happened, but it totally wasn't Nebuchadnezzar that this happened to. It happened to somebody else. And all I have to say in response is principle of embarrassment. You're talking about the Babylonian documents that say this. And let's think about it. Would the Babylonian historians really want to write and preserve in writing that the greatest king they ever had was driven to madness by God himself and forced to live like a wild animal for several years until he humbled himself and acknowledged that God was most high and supreme over all? I don't think they would have wanted to write that down. I can imagine all too easily them saying, no, 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 it wasn't Nebuchadnezzar. No, no, it was the guy that came after him it happened to. Yeah. Mm. Of course, we know that other empires of the past, like the Egyptian ones back in Moses' time, they had no problem with omitting any history from their records that would make them look bad in any way. So I have a pretty easy time believing, based on that and human nature, that the Babylonians, if they do have a record about a king being driven to madness for several years and then getting his position restored, but it wasn't Nebuchadnezzar, I can easily envision them saying that it wasn't Nebuchadnezzar just to avoid the embarrassment of writing down what the Bible says. <laughs> I can easily imagine that happening. Well, you were going to well, say something, Brett. Yeah, TTR, while you were... Uh basically putting out this message i was looking into the uh information on him and following along with you and there's a interesting thing he's one of the most historically documented uh people uh, throughout the bible so anybody out there that's been skeptical that they might want to look into him there's this unbelievable amount of documentation did you know that scientists believe that he actually may have uh, suffered a condition called zoanthropia. What's that? It means that he was convinced that he was an animal, like some of our atheist buddies out there. Do you have this article in front of you right now? Because I feel like that's something we should screen share. <laughs> let, me, uh, let me get you a link, because your screen sharing is looking real good right now. I'm afraid it'll cause me some issue. I'll private chat you this. Okay, now, then I'll put it up on my end. This is, oops, let me, uh, let me, uh, here. I'll give you the word because it's I'm trying to make a link that's like 10,000 lines long. Right. <laughs> Here's the condition, and then after you look at the condition, type in Nebuchadnezzar along with that, and you'll see all the information on it. 
All right, let's give that a try. Let's see. Nebuchadnezzar. That's how you spell his name. And then let's copy and paste this. You know me, I'm terrible at names. Somebody says their name is Bob, I'll say boob. <laughs> uh, uh, Boanthropy? Yeah, you see the word I typed into the private chat? Oh, but it's on Wikipedia! <laughs> hmm... King Nebuchadnezzar of the uh, sometimes attributed boanthropy based on his description in the book of Daniel. Uh, hmm, interesting. I thought the, you uh, me. Was it just Wikipedia you were looking at, or were you looking at a specific article? Well, was I, was actually, I was actually looking up uh, historical information on Nebuchadnezzar and his reign during his kingdom and all that while you were talking, and then that came up, and I was like, what the heck is this? I'd never even seen that word before, and I copied it, put it in the Google along with his name, and voila, this came up. Yep, I'm seeing... I'm seeing uh... I'm seeing a lot of articles talking about it, but I think I may have found one that's more interesting than the rest, uh, if I can get it. Uh, uh, let's see. Uh, okay. Well, I don't immediately have anything to share on screen. As far as a specific article goes, but I will screen share my search results so that people can see that we are not shy of sources when you type in Nebuchadnezzar uh, Zooanthropia. Just going to go ahead and share my entire screen again. Allow. Okay. And as you can see, when I took Brett's advice and typed in Nebuchadnezzar Zooanthropia, well, we got all kinds of results, including, well, I guess the other name for it is boanthropy, which is the same thing, just a different name for it. And apparently it's one of the weirdest disorders you've never heard of. <laughs> well, we've heard it tons of times from non-believers claiming they're fish, monkeys, and everything else under the sun. But uh, yeah, it's it ties in nicely, doesn't it? Yeah, uh, it actually lends more credence to what I just said a little bit ago about how the Babylonian historians would have been incredibly embarrassed to admit that this really happened to Nebuchadnezzar, even if they didn't understand what it was that was afflicted to him. But now that we know that such a thing is a real mental illness, a mental disorder, uh, now it's even easier to believe that the biblical account of Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel 4 really happened, especially when we know that the madness he suffered from is a real mental disorder yeah and we've seen it happen quite a bit with non-believers who think they come from fish <laughs> all right let me prep the screen for the next person we'll be talking about which is cyrus the great now cyrus the great if you actually study what Oh, if you just Google search or use any search engine really to look up information about him, you will uh, see that there's a lot of information about him, but most of it uh, 
attests to how he was actually a really great humanitarian as far as uh, being a ruler goes. Actually, let me uh, let me pull that one up first. Because uh, I got a non-Christian source that supports this assertion. And it's not very long. So I'll read that, actually, before I read the Bible passages about him that I have selected. Just got a screen share. Screen share. Allow. All right. And then... So I have here on screen an article from Northeastern Illinois University titled, Who Was Cyrus the Great? Short article, so we'll just read it in its entirety. Cyrus the Persian king, 590 to 529 BC, is considered by many to be an exemplary case of a benevolent conqueror as he allowed his subjects to live and worship the same way as before his political reign over them. When his father, Cambyses I, died, Cyrus expanded the Achaemenian dynasty and turned the Persian Empire into a sizable entity over a contiguous stretch of land from the shores of the Mediterranean to the foothills of the Himalayas in India. Cyrus is remembered in history because of his political philosophy of tolerance and respect toward non-Persians and his demonstration of mercy on his defeated foe. After establishing his empire, Cyrus allowed all subjects to participate in governance. He borrowed the good deeds of other cultures and the first sign of his commitment to diversity through culture. So we have an actual man who believes in real diversity. Interesting. He set the Jews free from their Babylonian captivity that had taken place decades before. Cyrus facilitated their return to the promised land, and he became a notable figure in the Jewish scripture as a savior who helped them build the second temple of Jerusalem. Many decades later, the Greek historian Xenophon described Cyrus, celebrated Cyrus because he honored his subjects and cared for them as if they were his own children. They, on their part, revered Cyrus as a father. In his Cyropedia, many people don't know that Cyrus's notoriety did not stop with the Greeks. One of, the America, one of America's founding fathers, Thomas Jefferson, owned not one but two copies of Xenophon's book. A replica of Cyrus's charter, known as the Cyrus Cylinder, is displayed at the United Nations in New York. In 1879, British archaeologists unearthed this ancient artifact written in Babylonian cuneiform. Cyrus has carved his policies that became part of his legacy, that became revolutionary ideas that the world today still tries to emulate. Regardless of one's perspective on faith, politics, or economic systems, Cyrus the Great is memorialized in every positive way by Persians across the world. Northeastern Illinois University honors his legacy. So the main message we get about Cyrus the Great and his empire is that when he ruled it and he was alive, he was known for being benevolent towards the people he conquered. He allowed them to practice the religion they were before and live the way they were before, as long as they, you know, pitched in where they were ordered to to the empire that he was the ruler of and things were pretty good when he was in charge of all of that and then there were other sites i read that said that there was actually archaeological evidence historical evidence they found the actual like manuscript document that had what we're about to read in Ezra chapter 1 verses 1 through 4 which says this in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. 
the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem and Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with freewill offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. So we see here that Cyrus himself allowed the Jews to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild their nation and their temple. But what a lot of people either don't know or don't want to hear is that many decades before Cyrus was even born, so well over a hundred years before any of this happened, God prophesied through the prophet Isaiah that Cyrus and the way his life would go down was going to happen and that he was going to allow the Jews to go back and rebuild their nation. So we're going to read one long stretch of text, well, kind of long. Uh, we're going to start in Isaiah chapter 44, verse 24, and then we're going to go through part of Isaiah 45 because it's also about Cyrus. So in Isaiah 44, verse 24, we read, This is what the Lord says, your Redeemer who formed you in the womb, I am the Lord, the maker of all things, who stretches out the heavens, who spreads out the earth by myself, who foils the signs of false prophets and makes fools of diviners, who overthrows the learning of the wise and turns it into nonsense, who carries out the words of his servants and fulfills the predictions of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, it shall be inhabited, of the towns of Judah, they shall be rebuilt, and of their ruins, I will restore them who says to the watery deep, be dry, and I will dry up your streams, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please. He will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt, and of the temple, let its foundations be laid. So just in this little part, God talks about Cyrus before he was ever born, much less a conquering king and ruler. And he called Cyrus his shepherd, and that Cyrus would accomplish all that God pleases, and that Cyrus would say, let Jerusalem and the temple be rebuilt. Let the foundations be laid. Kind of creepy to see a guy who didn't exist until like over a hundred years after this prophecy was given get talked about and have it accurately predict what he was going to do. But there's more. When we go to Isaiah chapter 45, Verses, oh boy, ah, here we are. Verses 1 through 13, we read this. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of, to subdue nations before him and to strip kings of their armor, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you and level the mountains. I will break down gates of bronze and cut through bars of iron. I will give you hidden treasures, riches stored in secret places, so that you may know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel, who summons you by name. For the sake of Jacob, my servant, of Israel, my chosen, I summon you by name and bestow on you a title of honor, though you do not acknowledge me. I am the Lord. 
and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me, so that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, people may know that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. You heavens above, rain down my righteousness. Let the clouds shower it down. Let the earth open wide. Let salvation spring up. Let righteousness flourish with it. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to those who quarrel with their maker, those who are nothing but potsherds among the potsherds on the ground. Does the clay say to the potter, what are you making? Does your work say the potter has no hands? Woe to the one who says to a father, what have you begotten? Or to a mother, what have you brought to birth? This is what the Lord says, the Holy One of Israel and its maker concerning things to come. Do you question me about my children or give me orders about the work of my hands? It is I who made the earth and created mankind on it. My own hands stretched out the heavens. I marshaled their starry hosts. I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness. I will make his way straight. He will rebuild my city and set my exiles free, but not for a price or reward, says the Lord Almighty. So we have God speaking through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 44, 24 through Isaiah 45, 13. And we have God revealing that he was strengthening Cyrus even though Cyrus did not acknowledge him. So Cyrus was not a believer in God and was a believer in whatever gods his religion taught or his culture taught. But even though he was not a believer in God, God strengthened Cyrus so that he would be able to conquer all the nations that he conquered in order to create his empire. And he gave him access to the hidden treasures that were stored up in Babylon, which is what the hidden treasures reference was to. He strengthened Cyrus so that he could do all these things just so that Cyrus could be the one because he was benevolent anyway. Cyrus could be the one to at the end of the 70 years of captivity that were prophesied in Jeremiah. Cyrus could be the one to say, OK, Jews, you're you're allowed now to go back to your land, rebuild your nation and rebuild the Lord's temple. That is what Cyrus's purpose in life was, even though he was never a believer in God. He was used by God. He was a servant of the Lord, in a sense. He was a shepherd of the Lord who did what the Lord wanted him to do, even though he never acknowledged God, as far as we know. He certainly didn't leading up to when he freed the Jews. My guess is he probably didn't before he died. But as we could see, God used both King Nebuchadnezzar, the greatest king, arguably, who ever lived, and one of the other greatest kings who ever lived, King Cyrus, he used them as instruments of judgment to carry out his will and to do the things he wanted to do, which in the case of Cyrus, he allowed the Jews to go back to the Holy Land 70 years after Nebuchadnezzar destroyed it and took them into captivity, just like the Lord prophesied back then. It's a beautiful picture of prophecy and fulfillment if you look at it in the grander scale of things. Do you have any thoughts on this, Brett, before we transition into more modern contemporary examples of God using non-believers to accomplish his will? 
No, I find it absolutely fascinating. We've got basically a couple different generations of people where you can see, even though they weren't uh, strong believers and some of them not even in the faith, that God was there for them the entire time. It, it kind of reminds me of that quote, you may not believe in God, but God believes in you. <laughs> yeah, I can see how that quote would be accurate when applied to what we were reading in the Bible. But as far as modern examples go, I'll give you a modern example of how God uses non-believers to do his will. I feel like for me personally, when I sit back and I look at how the atheists and evolutionists on the internet, and especially on YouTube, how they behave, the kind of arguments they make, the way they try to denounce and debunk the biblical worldview or the existence of God or creationism or any number of things, I feel like I'm actually benefiting in one sense because God is showing me and he's showing everybody really what happens when you rebel against him and deny what he has revealed about origins and how the earth came to be, how the universe came to be, how the human race came to be, how history actually went down, and more importantly, what objective morality is. And accountability for how you choose to live your life exists. It's amazing what, how the atheists behave. Because you can see clearly from the way they live their lives that they have to employ a lot of double standards and engage in a lot of doublespeak and hypocrisy in order to maintain the positions that they do, especially when they try to debunk my worldview. And even in the case of like the smarter, slicker ones, like the apologias of the world, even though they have really good mannerisms and they're charismatic and they're articulate and they can make on the surface some really convincing arguments, you follow them long enough, you observe them closely enough, and even with those guys, you can see that they have a real disdain for truth being told. They have a real disdain for both sides of an issue being presented in full so that people can make up their own mind, which is why people like him have engaged in cancel culture tactics in the past in regards to people like Ken Ham. So even with the ones who are more articulate and seem more convincing, you can see God showing us what happens when you reject him. Does it matter how smart you are? It doesn't matter how articulate you are. It doesn't matter how popular you are on the internet or how many views your videos get or how much engagement your social media posts get. It doesn't matter how many people you convince to think the way you do. You are living in folly and denial of reality when you reject God and his commands and his written word to humankind. And you can just see it with the way they live their lives and... I feel like God is using those people in a way to show us what happens when you live life separate from him. Well, TTOR, myself, listening to you and hearing the message that you're putting forth, I, uh, I feel like there's a, a personal uh, impact that has happened to me in kind of the same way. I remember when I first started transitioning and accepting God, I was standing out on the deck with my wife. And I said, honey, I, I believe in God absolutely now, but why, why do you think that God took so long to get around to me? Why not just two years into this? Why an entire, you know, decade or so? 
And she said, well, maybe God wanted you to be in the enemy camp so you would know all their tricks and tools. And uh, from there on, I, I took that as a strength and a message from her. That is very, uh, very inspiring and definitely very true as far as the principle goes. I feel the same way about uh, my conversion from older of creationism to younger of creationism when I look back on the journey I've been on. Because sometimes I look back and I think, man, why did I become a young earth creationist so much later in my life instead of, you know, closer to the beginning of my apologetics career or when I started studying apologetics? And when I look back on it, it becomes clearer to me. I think God allowed me to be an older of creationist for as long as I was, which was basically the first 24 years of my life, so that I would know how their arguments worked and how they handled the Bible and basically be able to expose the flaws with all of that stuff. And I spent many years on YouTube and BitChute and other websites doing exactly that. I haven't done it as much lately because time hasn't been there, hasn't been as much of a need or a desire lately, but I did all that stuff and I was able to do all that stuff because I used to be an older of creationist, especially when it comes to the arguments from the Bible that they try to make to justify their worldview. Because I used to think that way and know the verses they referred to, I was able to study the Bible in its entirety and know the context of the verses they appealed to, know what other passages say, and be able to... Uh, make proper judgment of what the Bible really says. And a lot of the arguments, actually pretty much all the arguments that they make from the Bible, they turn out to be false if you actually examine the matter closely, which is really sad because they talk a big game about proper biblical interpretation. And the principles they lay out, I agree with. It's just that they don't practice them. And that's a shame. But I can, and that principle is the same as what you went through what you described. That's pretty interesting from the experiences that you've had and the, all the learning that you've done and seeing things from all different positions. It's uh, I had never really thought about that with Nebuchadnezzar before about God actually protecting and actually helping in some different ways on non-believers. A lot of religious folks out there, they got this idea. If you're a non-believer, then God's pretty much done with you. No, this is a, a huge historical, you know, uh, thing right in our face here. And it's amazing you pointed it out. It went right over my head until I heard it today. Yeah, and as we saw in Daniel, he also was not afraid to give Nebuchadnezzar a few slices of humble pie when his ego got too big. <laughs> uh, and if God's willing to humble someone as great and mighty as Nebuchadnezzar, well... <laughs> He can humble anybody. That should be the lesson we get from that. So you were getting into Cyrus a bit there. Did you have some more you wanted to say on him? No, I think the passages I read from the Bible and what I read from that website lay out what I wanted to point out about him. Uh, the, the proclamation he gave, you know, let the Jews go back to their land and rebuild their nation and temple. That's not only written in the passage in the Bible I read from Ezra, but there's actually a, uh, oh, I forget what the document is called, but basically there's like a Persian document where it has written something very similar to what 
the book of Ezra has written as far as what Cyrus says. There is an actual non-Bible document documenting that Cyrus really did proclaim what he did about the Jews and letting them go back to their land, which is something that is very fascinating to me because I'm sure in the past, before that document was discovered, a lot of people said, well, yeah, I know Ezra says that he said that, but we don't have any evidence outside the Bible that King Cyrus or Cyrus the Great ever actually made such a proclamation. And then, of course, we found the document outside the Bible where he did. <laughs> so, you know, it's just one of those things that is a great evidence supporting the Bible. Yeah, I find it interesting that uh, most of the people who claim that they can't find evidence in the Bible are also the same people who admittedly have never even read the Bible. Yeah, biblical illiteracy is a huge problem today. And it's not just with non-believers. It's people even who call themselves Christians who haven't read the Bible or even if they have read it, it was like years ago or it was in passing and scanning and they didn't really take the time to study and understand it. Because a lot of the issues that the Christian church in America experiences today, a lot of them stem from biblical ignorance, biblical illiteracy, as my friend Tom would call it. And he and I agree that if Christians in general were more willing to sit down and study and read the Bible in context and figure out exactly what it says, exactly what it teaches. A lot of the issues we have today in the church would not be present. Of course, I have a hard time believing that's ever actually going to happen because things are only going to get worse before the Lord comes back, according to the scriptures. And as we have seen in the last couple of years, things, well, they're just getting worse. Well, TTOR, it may not surprise you to know this, but back whenever I was doing the non-believer thing, I don't know if you knew this or not, but if I went into a chat room or made a church phone call, one of my first questions I would ask people is, have you actually read the Bible cover to cover? And if a religious person told me no, that they've read a lot of stuff, but they haven't read it all or haven't had the time to do that, um, even though I was a non-believer, I would come to the conclusion that this was not a person who actually cared about their faith. You've got a book that you're convinced is from God himself, the creators of the universe, and don't even want to bother to read it. As soon as I heard that, that would be the end of the conversation with those specific people. That's how I right. was. Right, and it makes sense that you would be that way and the way you approach them, because you know, we're commanded by the Bible itself to study the scriptures and understand them as best as we are able to. And, you know, we don't really have an excuse, especially in today's age. I mean, we don't just have a Bible you can hold in your hand like this, but you can get apps on your phone and on your computer and other devices where you can read the Bible through those. And you have apps where you can literally have a narrator read the Bible to you. On my phone, I have a app by the Gideons, and it's a Bible app where it not only has the uh, ESV version and the King James version of the Bible, and you can look up each verse and each chapter and each book, you know, in those categories, but you can also hit the play button at the bottom of the page and it will narrate all of it for you. So you could literally just even take an app like that and sit it down and hit play and you can listen to some voice 
read the entire Bible to you. I mean, we really have no excuse to be biblically illiterate with all the different ways we have access to the Bible and can read the Bible and can even have narrations pre-recorded read the Bible to us. I mean, we really don't have an excuse at this point to be biblically illiterate. And I think that biblical illiteracy is really bad if you're a Christian because we're commanded by the New Testament to be able to defend our faith in an intellectual way. And if you don't even know what the Bible says, you're not going to be adequately prepared to defend the truthfulness of its claims. You can't defend the truthfulness of its claims with evidence if you don't even know what the claims are. And apologetics, unfortunately, is something that not too many Christians get into. Or if they do get into it, they get like, you know, they're tippy-toe in it and they don't get any further than that. And that's something I've always wanted to change over the years as I've been doing my apologetics content. And this, ladies and gentlemen, is one of the major reasons why I connected with TTOR in the first place and watched a lot of his videos over on BitChute and the stuff that he's done on other sites because I realized from listening to him and how passionate he is and his the information that he gives that it is clear that he takes his faith very seriously. That's one of the reasons why we became very connected and I think really good friends. Other people, I just felt like they were wishy-washy. Yeah, and in my case, I put a lot of uh, emphasis on what the Bible says because, as you know, and I know, and other people watching know, if you put your faith in Christian leaders and other Christian people over the Bible, you're always going to end up disappointed, especially when the people get found out in sin or they turn out to be living a double life or they deconvert from the faith into like atheism or agnosticism or some other religion. If you put your faith, your ultimate faith, that is, into Christian people, there's just nothing but disappointment waiting for you. But if your faith is in the Bible and what it teaches, then no matter what happens with Christian people, no matter the sins they commit, no matter how they get exposed for being fakes and frauds or being horrible people, or if they deconvert to another religion after spending years seemingly doing the Lord's work, that stuff will temporarily bother you but it will fade pretty quickly because they were never your ultimate faith or your source of your faith the bible was and that's the way i've been for many years and so that's how i'm able to keep going and maintain my faith even when all kinds of things happen with biblical leaders church leaders christian leaders falling today the bible's my rock and so that stuff doesn't phase me even if it's sad yeah, I never condemned anybody for what they may have done in their past or for mistakes they may have made. But if someone claims that they have a foundation built on something, yet they know nothing of their foundation, as a, a smart, wise man once said, if you have no foundation to stand on, then you have nothing to stand on for. Yeah, because if you don't have a strong foundation, then as Jesus said, as you're building your house, upon the shifting sands, and when the storm comes, blown away. Just blown away. And that's true with pretty much any worldview outside the biblical worldview. It's not a strong foundation. So when the storm comes and things get tough, and it won't be that far into the future when things get really tough for everybody, like prison planet tough, uh, we're going to see who's legitimate and who's not. But that's something I've been thinking for years now is that 
as things get more draconian in tech, on the internet, in society, in government, and any and the political landscape in general, as things get more draconian and Orwellian, we're going to see over time who the true believers are, the people who really believe in the Lord and believe the things that are recorded and written in the Bible. We're going to see who's legitimate and who's not. If you don't mind, just for a moment, just to take a little bit of a, a right turn or left turn, whatever okay. turn you want to go with, you've been working on a website lately. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what the uh, the concept is and what got you going for it? What's the idea of it? Are we talking about the TTOR side I just put out a video about, or are we talking about quarter? Well, you've got your video site. You also got one that you just recently talked about in video and you okay. showed off some stuff. Would you like to share with the audience over here? Right now, folks, we're connected on both channels. We're actually live streaming here as well as TTOR's YouTube channel. Make sure you subscribe to them if you're listening from. All right. You want to show us what you got on the website? There we go. Yeah. So the one that you can see my TTOR site, right? Yeah. So the one, so the one that you're seeing, yeah. So the one you're seeing on screen, ladies and germs, is the official TTOR site that I just rolled out like a few weeks back. Uh, I did it through Joshu Hosting Services, which is run by my friend Josh, who also also helped me set up the other site you're about to see. Basically, what I found out is that on June 30th, so in 28 days. Faith Life Sites, which was hosting my website that I previously had, it's all going to go bye-bye, and so is my website. And so I was like, oh, man, I got to find a new way to create a website and you know not have the, my site go away when Faith Life Sites goes away. So I start talking to Josh, and I tell him about Faith Life Sites and how it's a church website builder that I use to make a TTOR website. And then I told him about how I was paying them $20 a month just so I could have the ability to embed my videos on my website. And that's when he informed me that I was getting majorly ripped off. And then he explained to me how I could create my own website on a $3 per month cloud server on Joshu Hosting Services. And it allows for unlimited web traffic. And it's basically unlimited everything in most ways. And basically, I could have a better looking more functional version of my website and only have to pay three bucks a month to run the whole thing on a little cloud server instead of paying someone else 20 bucks a month, not just to host my site, but just so that I could have the ability to embed videos on it. And naturally, when I was building this thing, I discovered that just about every uh, block or component that you can put on it has an HTML box, which allows me to easily put my videos on there. So this is the home page. You got the about page. There's actually a blog section that I haven't started utilizing yet, but I will in the future. There's a social media page where you can see all the platforms I'm on, where my tip uh, jar crowdfunding stuff is, as well as my Teespring store. We got the God TV radio live streams that I've hosted. We got the TTOR show. We also got my guest speaking information, pages for each of my books. That's basically it in a nutshell, but it's a better looking version of my website and it's way cheaper to maintain than the old site was. I mean, we're talking an 85% savings in monthly uh, 
expenditure to maintain this new site. And that's something that I am so thankful for. And it looks good, too. But then the other site that I run that I've been spending a lot of time working on, especially recently, is Quarter, which is my own YouTube alternative that I created about a little over a year ago, actually. It's very similar to YouTube in terms of layout, user interface, in terms of features and functionality. So like there's HD video uploads, there's live streaming, there's free restreaming, there's public playlists, there's an easy to use comment moderation system, and the ability to customize your profile is better than YouTube's because you actually can do like all kinds of tech stuff in the description parts in the back end. And then there's also features that you won't find on YouTube, like the video chat rooms that you can create on Quarter. Back in the day, Google Hangouts used to be part of YouTube. So you could literally from your YouTube channel, create a Google Hangout room where you could do video calls with your friends, family, coworkers, fellow content creators, etc. And then if you wanted to, you could stream them to your YouTube channel. But then like five years ago or so, they took that away. Well, on my site, you can basically do the same thing. You can create a video chat room using something that's an open source alternative to Google Hangout. And you can do basically all the same things you could do on Google Hangout. And you can even stream to your channels from them, which is really cool and something I plan to use more in the future when I have a better uh, infrastructure behind Quarter. But another thing you can do on Quarter that's really cool and that gives you incentive to actually share your videos out if you're uploading content to it is that you can earn this currency I made called quarter bucks. It's not real money. It's not some cryptocurrency, which one person mistakenly thought it was last year. And I was like, no, no, sorry. It's not crypto. It's literally just a little digital point system that exists only on the site. I call it quarter bucks. And the way it works is the more video views you get on your videos, the more of quarter bucks that you earn. And when you earn enough quarter bucks, you can actually use those quarter bucks to promote either individual videos of yours or your entire channel on the main page of the site. So in my case, you can see on screen, my channel, TTOR, is in the promoted channels tab that is towards the top of the main page. So if you're someone who's like, yeah, I, I want to get seen by everyone on quarter and try and raise my subscriber count, the best way to do that is to actually create a quarter channel, upload your content to it, share out your quarter links, and do everything you can to le get legitimate views on your quarter videos. And what you'll notice is that the more views your videos get, the quicker your quarter bucks will fill up and the quicker you can promote your channel or your individual videos on the main page of the site. And since there isn't a lot of people using Quarter right now, lots of people can promote their channels on the main page of Quarter, and they don't need my permission to do it. They just have to actually get views on their videos. And so not only does it give you an incentive to share out your Quarter videos, it actually gives you incentive to post a lot of your videos or all of your videos to Quarter, because you never know which videos are going to get lots of views and which aren't. And so you got to really work at it. You know, you got to do that grind that you would do for YouTube. You just got to do it for quarter, basically. And so this is something that I've been wanting to do for years. I finally got around to doing it last year. My friend Josh has also helped me with this. He 
is allowing me to use his hosting services to host this site on one of his dedicated servers. And one of the first things I had to do was make sure that the backend security was good. Because on the day that I launched the website, we had forgotten to put CrowdSec onto my server. And so within like 30 minutes of my website going online, it got such a large, massive DDoS attack on it that it actually shut down and you couldn't even load a page. So what Josh and I had to do was we had to go in and put CrowdSec onto my server, which is an open source uh, security program that basically blocks DDoS attacks. It compiles a list that's ever-growing of all the IP addresses that are linked to bot accounts that do these DDoS attacks. And then when DDoS attacks happen to your site, if those IP addresses are already in the CrowdSec list and you have CrowdSec enabled on your server, it will shut down the DDoS attack before it can actually affect your site. And so I'm actually being hit with DDoS attacks all the time right now in quarter but you would never know it because CrowdSec is destroying them before they can actually affect the performance of Quarter. So there are people out there who would love to shut Quarter down, basically just by making it unusable through DDoS attacks. But thanks to the technology that we have at our disposal these days, those attacks are completely useless. And so when you come to Quarter, you don't have to worry about the site going down one day because a DDoS attack happened and Oh, I guess I better go back to YouTube. Not going to happen at quarter. We've got the security in place to prevent something like that from ever happening. And I made sure that my friend's hosting service is the one I use to host the site. So we don't have to worry about our site going down like Parlay did two years ago when they had Amazon hosting all their stuff. <laughs> like that was ever going to be a good idea in the long run, but. Yeah, Quarter is a video sharing site you can trust. And if you're a content creator, you really should invest into Quarter as well as really most of the alternatives to YouTube that there are. Because as Brett can tell you, and as I can tell you, there are some topics we can literally not discuss on YouTube without our channels getting struck down or videos getting struck down or all the above. And that's why Quarter exists. I don't know if you uh, noticed this while you were getting your stuff uh, together earlier, just before the show. Uh, let me show you something real quick. See, because you and I, we actually did an entire show on this topic. Don't want to get into it too much because I don't want to get into trouble, but just check this out. Yeah, I heard about that. Um, just adding one more to the list. One of, the, uh, one of the finest actors of our modern day has been blinded as well as paralyzed in some areas of his body due to this. So we're not going to, we don't want to mention too many words because the AI can actually pick up on our subtitles and voice and all that. But I thought you might find that interesting. That's something we've been talking about for the last couple of years, but nobody listened. Yeah, and that topic, Brett and I have a whole live stream about that's only on my Rumble channel, my Quarter channel, my Joshua TV channel, my YouTube channel, my BitChute channel, and whatever other channels I have. I got it in video as well as audio on the radio as well. Yep. Speaking of Rumble, though, I did notice that I gained two subscribers on Rumble this week after I initially lost two subscribers on YouTube, so... 
I'm guessing that's where they went. <laughs> you feel like Rumble has improved? Because I remember when I was using it, it was like my videos would not be public, and I'd have to wait for somebody to come along and actually approve them. Has it changed? Yeah, I don't have to have that happen at all. I just upload a video, and it's there. And it handles the higher definitions pretty well, too. And the live streaming works pretty good, at least if you do it from StreamYard. Uh, when we, uh, that last stream you and I did together, that was only on the alternative sites, the one that was only streaming on Rumble and Joshua TV and Odyssey, uh, that stream was streamed to Rumble and it did pretty good. It actually got a lot more views than my videos usually do on Rumble. So that's something I'm going to consider doing more often going forward. Because, you know, the bigger I can get on all the sites, the more people I can reach. And someone somewhere is benefiting from my content and work. So wherever I can reach them, I will. I was going to make a suggestion since you're heavily into doing websites and all this. As you probably noticed by now, I've been working on something myself. And I've uh, been using ChatGPT to help me with some of my articles and stuff. And boy, that really cuts down on a lot of aggravation really quick. But yeah. I have noticed something. You know, all these people out here, they keep on talking about how great ChatGTP Chat is. But the the page likes to try to protect certain topics. Oh. I notice if I, I ask it about certain things, it'll want to warn me and tell me, no, that's not very nice to say. And I'm like, uh, you're a computer. I don't want to hear your moral thoughts on the issue. I just want to hear what the issue is. It's weird how they do that. Yeah, I've noticed that too. Like, uh the videos, the video I did recently, or not recently, but like a couple months back, reporting on the whole Chris Jones can't hove in the situation and how Chris Jones had been arrested again. I tried to use Chat GPT to create an alternative title and write the description box and tags for my video, and it literally would not let me basically talk about how it was unsafe. <laughs> I got into a little argument with the chat GPT because I wanted to do an article about uh, it's kind of like on the same uh, tangent we were going on earlier about atheists claiming they come from animals and all that. And I said, I'd like to do an article about atheists believing they come from animals. The things denied that it said, they're not claiming that. And it's very, it's not nice to do this kind of stuff. And I said, but they believe in evolution, right? That says, correct. Did they come from animals? Yes. So they are animals. No. The thing tried to argue with me like a damn dumb non-believer. <laughs> maybe we should introduce ChatGPT to Polygia, and maybe they can iron this out together. Because remember, Polygia told me on his uh, video response that we don't just come from animals. We are animals. We currently are apes. So I would love to have ChatGPT tell Apologia that he's wrong and see the kind of back and forth they could have. That that would be fantastic. Oh, I uh, I did a pop shot at the ChatGPT and it seemed to be upset with me. I said, no wonder they call you artificial intelligence. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, his intelligence is so artificial. <laughs> yeah. So you got some more Bible stuff or some more views? And I was curious also um, why there's a lot of non-believers out there, but I've noticed for at least the past month or two or maybe more, 
Uh, Paul seems to be one that you're specifically interested in. Why is him above the others so interesting or fascinating for you, if you don't mind me asking? Right. If you've followed me long enough, ladies and germs, and Brett's followed me long enough, so he knows this. I've made videos about many of the different uh, atheist YouTubers, evolutionist YouTubers out there. I've done Professor Stick and Vice Rhino and Shannon Q and uh, Sir Sick and also... Uh, well, I did interact with Raging Atheist on one of your shows when he was still the Raging Atheist. And others that are not coming to mind, right? Oh, yeah, uh, Genetically Modified Skeptic. I did a couple videos regarding him. But the reason why I've done videos about Apologia before and why I did the super epic one recently, the reason why I do it is because unlike most of those other yahoos, he's more of a threat because he's got good mannerisms, he's got charisma, he's articulate, he gives off the vibe that he's this likable personality that you could really chill with. You know, he's not like a raging, out-of-control, wild animal, cursing up a storm. He generally doesn't use curse words. And the arguments he makes on the surface seem convincing as far as why you shouldn't believe in the biblical worldview and instead embrace an atheistic evolutionary worldview. And that's why I made videos about him in the past and why I really went hard on him on my last one is because he's probably the most dangerous one of them all. Because of the fact that he's so likable as a person, at least, you know, as his internet personality goes. And because he's seemingly more intelligent than pretty much all the other ones out there. So he's the most dangerous in my mind because of those things. And therefore, if I take a video response to him, it's got to be deep and epic. And so that's why I tried to do in that hour, 43 minute video response I made to him. Because I decided to respond to every point of his 23 minute video and when you choose to do that, that becomes a nearly two-hour response video. Yeah, he does. There is that that I've noticed about him. He does also seem to have a bit more courage than the other unbelievers you mentioned. All the other ones that you debunked and refuted, they didn't have the courage to come back at you or anything like that. But he actually will get a little dirty and get in the ring and all that. So I can see where you're coming from. Yeah, I've, I've been told that... Uh, you know, it's the non-believers who are very friendly and all that, that are the ones that can do the most devastating of work. A person that gets up on video and just screams and yells about how they hate God. Now eh, people are going to, that's only exciting for about five minutes, but you got a point. Or they scream and yell at you and use all kinds of curse words and tell you what trash you are for being a Christian. Yeah, that gets old after five minutes too. <laughs> and it's easy for to reject those guys because they're completely unlikable and no one wants to be around that. Not even atheists, generally speaking, want to be around that kind of person for more than five minutes at a time. It's true. So what do you, uh, why do you think, obviously with as much, uh, you put a lot of deep research whenever you're dealing with all these different non-believers. What is it about him though? What's his story? Uh, Shannon Q, I've heard her story and that uh, skeptic guy that you brought up. What is it about this guy, though, that you think he, why he does what he does? Well, Apologia's backstory is actually similar to some of the other people I've made videos about, like Vice Rhino, for example. He used to be a Christian, used to identify as a young earth creationist, and he apparently was involved at a church for a long period of time 
but then he started exploring apologetic stuff and he just basically started believing what the atheistic evolutionary authority figures in academia were saying about everything regarding origins and reality. He viewed that as a higher source of authority than the Bible at some point. And so that started his gradual descent into leaving young earth creationism and leaving the biblical worldview and becoming an atheistic evolutionist who spends all of his time on the internet refuting creationism and Christianity in the Bible. And sometimes specifically going after AIG and Kent Hovind. So that's his basic backstory into why he is the way he is now. But what's interesting about him... Do you think that he's sincere, though? Because I've heard atheists like Aaron Raw, who claims he had a similar background, but when you listen to his understanding or his supposed experiences, it sounds like he's just kind of making it up. It sounds like he's just saying, I know all about your daddy. I mean, what kind of nonsense is that? (laughs) I mean, (laughs) you get what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah, when Apologia has tried talking about and describing Bible stuff, he definitely is more knowledgeable about what the Bible says than someone like Aaron Ra, for example. Absolutely. And that's also what makes him so dangerous is he gets enough of the Bible right to give himself more, uh, what's the word, plausibility. It seems more likely that what he's saying is true. But... Yeah, it was interesting about my video response to him that was the nearly two-hour one, is that there were parts of his video where it seemed like he was trying to justify himself before me. Like, almost like, in a way, he was begging me to give him good evidence to believe in God so that he could return to the faith. And the whole thing at first just felt a little weird to me. It's like, why are you telling me this? Why are you asking for this? Why are you like burying your soul to me here? I thought I was just this little nobody, you know. Because <laughs> but, you, you know, the more, I, the more the same I think... thing that I've seen in you, TTOR, that you're the real deal, that you actually do sincerely believe in this and you're strongly into it. That doesn't really surprise me because I myself, I had said many times in the past, I wish somebody could come along and be able to convince me and all that. So he might be one of those. He may be somebody in the future who you might be sitting beside on a podcast talking about Jesus, you know? Yeah, and that's something I mentioned, too, at the end of the video, is that evolutionists and atheists should be very scared right now by the kind of things he was saying in his video response to me, because they indicate that in the future he could very easily convert back to faith in the biblical worldview and a saving relationship with Jesus. And that should scare them spitless, to be honest. That should scare them uh, even more than you leaving the faith years ago did. Uh, says Apologia, who I think is probably the best atheist YouTuber on the internet in terms of how he presents himself and how he does his content and you know all the stuff I've mentioned. I consider him to be the best atheist YouTuber on the internet right now compared to the others. And if he ends up converting back to the faith at some point in the future like so many atheists have, that's going to be really interesting if it happens. Well, you should try to reach out to him, try to contact him unless you already have and say, hey, I'd like to have you on a live show sometime or if you'd prefer private discussion, you know, make it clear to him that you're not trying to do any kind of gotcha or spankings or anything. Mm -hmm. You just want to have a a down-to-earth conversation with him. Right. I'll think about that. 
It's a little tough right now, though, planning content because of my new job. Uh, basically, I create content for someone else during the day. Then I come home at night and try and figure out my own content. <laughs> yeah, you got a lot of stuff going on. You got the work, and then you got to do all that editing and work for the church. And poof, mm -hmm. goodness gracious. You got fun, going but, fun, but uh, a lot of work involved. <laughs> Yes. Uh, is there any topics that you thought of that would be fun to talk about during the show, Brett? Well, I pretty much was interested in hearing the topics that you had for tonight. For me, it's been a really, really busy week. Uh, my daughter tomorrow is going to be 21 years old and we're going to be celebrating her birthday. And uh, that's that's the kind of things I've been thinking about lately is, you know, what's going on in the personal life. But I knew that uh, doing a, a show where you're talking and hosting about the Bible and all that, I thought that you'd probably, like usual, come up with something fascinating and interesting that would reach a lot of people. Yeah, I try not to disappoint in that regard, <laughs> especially since I've never really talked about it on my content ever in the last eight years, so... I figured this would be the perfect forum to explore that with others. Well, it is interesting. I mean, here we are. We're talking about non-believers that you've been making videos to and talking to. And then on top of it, you have all these Bible passages that show us and represent God as actually being there for the non-believer, sometimes even helping them to be successful in some ways, providing that something good, of course, will come out of it. So it's a, it's a fantastic show, I think, TTR, and I hope that we continue to do more like this. You always come up with good stuff. Thanks. And in that light, that's also why I'm fascinated by watching the Atheist Evolutionist YouTube community. It's because every time they put out the content that they do, or they respond to me in particular, or they talk about like creationism topics or Bible topics in general, it always gives me really good insight into where their headspace is at, and that's where you figure out how best to respond to them. But God is using them to show you what life is like apart from him. And in some ways, I guess it could be attractive to some people, especially if they're looking like at a popular atheist content creator who's got like hundreds of thousands or millions of followers, subscribers, and they got all this money coming in through Google AdSense, crowdfunding, etc. And they just seem on the surface to be living this great high quality life that you would like to live. <laughs> uh, I can see where some people would be attracted to that and, you know, find excuses to deconvert from whatever faith they hold into becoming one of those people. But yeah, that kind of stuff has never mattered to me. And so it was like when I look at the arguments that atheists and evolutionists make, I just don't find them convincing on the surface. And then when I actually look into it, I find it even less convincing. It's like, golly, gee, is these are these really the arguments that so many young people are falling for in order to deconvert to atheism, agnosticism, and, you know, basically justify all the partying they want to do? Like, is this really it? So we've talked about God, and we've also talked about your interest in atheists and evolution. I suppose I can throw out a topic that you might find fascinating. Have you ever thought to yourself, and this is kind of basic, and I know some people out there are going to probably go, huh? But we, when we read the Bible, we have an actual reason why it is that 
get this, why females and women exist. Now, I was talking to my wife out on the deck, and I said, let's say, hypothetically, that there wasn't a higher power or some kind of intelligence involved in this and the existence of humanity. Can you, would you be able to come up with one theory or idea, honey, I said to her, on why nature would create two separate entities that conceptualize with each other, such as a male and female to begin with. I mean, imagine it. Without God, without aliens or some kind of intelligent sentient being, why do women even exist in the first place? Right, and then that would also lead to a bigger question, which is, if there is no God guiding any of this process, assuming the process even exists, that is evolution, uh, why would evolution choose to allow some species or animal groups to reproduce asexually without a sex partner, and then others need a sex partner to reproduce. Where, where does this distinction get made? How does these? How do these decisions get made as far as which species can do that and which can't? Like, how does that even work? It's just something that I, I couldn't give you a good answer for, and I doubt any evolutionist could either. Another thing, and this is something I brought up in the past, and it seems to go right over non-believers' heads on this, and not to come off uh, sounding, you know, kind of dirty here, but I have yet to hear a non-believer explain how it is that if they did go through all these different evolutionary processes, how did the female stay compatible at the same time, they continue to go through their evolutionary process from, you know, the amoeba to whatever atomical structure. They just manage to stay compatible for billions of years. Nobody's answered yet. Right. And that's another good point, too, because the evolution process is long and complicated according to its own narrative. And so there's a lot of opportunities along the way for something to go wrong. You know what I mean? Like there's a lot of opportunities for mutations to kick in or deformities, if you will, and something to go wrong to where evolution doesn't lead to the creation of male and female. Like maybe it's only male, maybe it's only female, or maybe it's both, but they're both jacked up and can't reproduce. Like how how do all these things just randomly go right in order for us to be here? How? Yeah, when we read the Bible, it gives us a very deep explanation on why females and women exist, what their purpose, what their point is, and what is the meaning of a man, and how they work together in their roles. But nature doesn't give you any information on it. It doesn't tell you why it is that males or females even exist in the first place. Why we're not just plops, you know, plopping around on the ground with no purpose or meaning or determination. See what I mean? Yep. And if I can, now this may be out of context, but if I can quote Agent Smith from The Matrix, he once said, without purpose, life cannot exist. Boy, he did have some quotes, didn't he? <laughs> Agent Smith said a lot of great things that stick into my mind, even to this day. <laughs> what did you think about, I, I believe it was in the third movie where Keanu Reeves manages, I forget what the old man's name was, but it was... The Architect? Yeah, I think it was The Architect. They had some kind of discussion on free will. How'd you feel about that? 
Uh, are you thinking the second movie where he actually meets the architect? Or are you thinking about the Agent Smith Neo discussions from the third movie? I thought it was the third movie where he goes, it's an old man. It's a room filled with television sets showing all these different versions. Right. That's the end of the second movie. Although, if you know your history, The Matrix Reloaded and Matrix Revolutions was originally going to be one big movie. But they realized that nobody wanted to sit through a four and a half, five hour movie, even if it was full of amazing omnipresent action sequences and great storytelling. So they literally split the story into two and made two separate movies out of them, which is why both movies came out in the same year, 2003. Who is who's this person that decides that a movie can't be over a couple hours? One of the best movies Christianity has ever conceived of was Jesus of Nazareth. And that thing is like almost eight hours long. And I love it. I can sit down and watch it. I don't think I've ever actually seen that. But it is the best Jesus movie you can ever, ever watch. It is awesome. I'll have to look into that one day. Although I will say, I don't think I have the ability to sit that long to watch a movie all in one sitting. I can usually go about three hours, and then that's where well, don't you know, I got to get up and move. Don't try to sit through the whole eight-hour thing. Just uh, watch like uh, ten minutes of it. I guarantee once you get like ten minutes into it, you're going to be like, wow, this is incredible. And unlike a lot of religious movies I've seen, and I hate to say this, but a lot of them are not. They add stuff or take things away that they, I don't even know why. But this is accurate. It's from the point of Jesus being born all the way up to the death and resurrection and all that. It's a great film. And the guy who actually plays Jesus, you're like, yeah, this is, if anybody had to act for him, that would be the guy. I didn't, I don't, I didn't really care for uh, movies like The Passion. Too much added stuff. And it was, it just felt like a snuff film. I hate to say that hurt anybody's feelings, but it was, it was rough. Well, I wouldn't describe it as a snuff film, but there were some things added that are definitely not from the Bible. I agree. Actually, my favorite uh, Bible movie is a 2003 indie film called The Gospel of John. It's a word for word reenactment of the entire Gospel of John. So the movie is almost three hours long because they're acting out literally every word. Nothing's left out. And that's one of the best done Bible-based movies I've ever watched. Uh, It's got a lot of people in it, and it's got some good sets for being an indie film. And it holds up really good even after, you know, 20-some years, whenever it came out. I think it came out in 2003, the year before Passion did. But because it wasn't a Hollywood film, not a lot of people know about it. But if you go onto YouTube, Brett, you could probably find several listings of it on other people's channels. It's definitely something I think you would enjoy since you like, you know, accurate Bible movies. Gospel of John you'd like. Then there's the same people made the Gospel of Matthew, which is a four and a half hour movie (laughs) that does the same thing with the Gospel of Matthew. And I think they also did the Book of Acts in the same way. Yeah, there's some good Bible based movies that are like what you're into. It's just they're not eight hours long like Jesus of Nazareth. They're like two and a half or three or four and a half hours. Yeah, Jesus of Nazareth is incredible. It's an incredible. Uh, just just watch ten minutes of it. You and your uh, you and your lady ought to sit down and just check out ten minutes of it, and I guarantee you won't be able to stop. You'll be like, "Whoa, 
you know, you can always pause it or come back if it's on DVD or stream, man. You don't have to just watch it all in one sitting. But I'm telling you, you watch it once, just 10 minutes, you're going to be like, wow. Yeah, that's something I actually could. If, if it's something that's on YouTube or is on some other streaming site somewhere that I don't have to spend money on, <laughs> I might actually consider doing that as a live stream series. It's free. It's free on uh, Prime Video. So uh, if you have Prime Video, you can watch it on that. And there's also this thing called Free Wii or something like that. That uh, mm. it's an app you can download and watch it for free. It's awesome, man. Hmm, interesting. I'll have to look into that. Yeah, another one of the things I was thinking about doing as a series live stream or production. I'm not sure which at this point. I was considering doing a uh, a reading series where I read through my superhero book. Well, that sounds interesting. Maybe we can do some shows on that as well. What do you say? That would be good. I just need to get in touch with uh, my publisher and create the perfect version of it first before I do something like that. I'd like to be able to, uh, I was saying this to you a while back, I, I think I brought it up to you about three months ago, but do you have a large, as large of an image as you can possibly get of that symbol that you use, the truth objective with uh, Jesus in the middle? Because I was telling you, I'd like to put together a, uh, a shirt for you. Hmm. Uh... Yeah, I mean, I have HD uh, logos of my logo. I just got to uh, look at. Well, what I want to do is, is I want to give it a more. Um, I was well, I was wanting to surprise you, but what the hell? I want it to look like uh, something that looks real, like there's like some kind of uh, metal around the circle and all that, with a uh, like mm. a real version of it going on. Hey, there's your friend right there. Speaking of the. No, I was going to say the devil, but no, she's not. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Shannon Q, how you doing? Yeah, uh, to answer your question, though, Brett, the HD logo of my channel logo that I was looking at is 4,009 pixels by 4,009 pixels. Is that enough, or would you need something bigger? Let's say that one more time. How big? 4,009 pixels by 4,009 pixels. Geez, that's way the, more than enough, man, but that'll work. The higher <laughs> resolution, the better. All right, I'll send that to you via email then. All right, if I, uh, I'm going to be using a lot of AI software and all that stuff to do this, as well as paint programs. I'll send you any ideas that I come up with that I think that are neat. I'll send you a copy of it, get your... Uh, Basically, you're a Thor-tie on it before we... My before. approval! <laughs> uh, yeah, I'll, I'll definitely be interested in seeing that when you've created something. So you got any more topics you want to throw out there? Has there been anything on your mind? Anything personal going on? I remember last time we talked, you said that you were thinking about a whole family thing. Is that a, you and something the lady friends think about doing? Is there going to be a bunch of little warriors running around saying... Uh, <laughs> I'm not about to become a father, no. But uh, one thing I definitely want to let you know on air and let everyone else know is that you recently asked me about creating a video giving all the reasons why I'm a young earth creationist to this day. 
And that is probably going to be my next uh, video project. I have a list already made. I just got to like prepare everything as far as the notes and links and all that stuff. And then I got to produce and, you know, film and produce and publish it. Well, keep in mind, TTR, when you put it out there, um, you know that I've always, uh, it doesn't matter to me what someone's views are, even if they're different than mine, but I've always wanted to really understand why it is people capsulate and get so involved in this uh, topic. I know for you, it's like obvious. You, for you, it's like, yeah, I, I know how important this is, but me, I need to know as many reasons as you can possibly think of because if I ever, you know, I'm old earth creationist right now. If you come up with some good topics, I have an open mind. I'd like to be able to have some arguments for it. I don't want to find myself in a debate and looking like a damn cuckoo bird up there. You know what I mean? Yeah, I can say right now that the list I come up with will be a combination of what the Bible says, things in science, and like just observing the way that... Uh, atheists evolutionists and older creationists handle these kind of issues so it'll be like a bunch of different reasons that will appeal to a lot of different things and i think you'll be interested just to see the variety so do you from what i was getting because you take it very seriously and i can see that some of the people in your comments uh, whenever they're talking do you believe that it actually will majorly affect someone's salvation if they were to stay old earth or didn't even get into that uh, part of it well to be fair uh before i directly answer that uh Anything that the Bible clearly teaches is a salvation issue. So, for example, you told me if you were a Christian and you said, yeah, uh, the exodus from Egypt never happened, that'd be a salvation issue. Or if you said that uh, Samson never existed or that he never did any of the things that the book of Judges said that he did, salvation issue, because the Bible clearly teaches that he did exist and that he did do the things that they don't like. Or if you say that uh, Jesus wasn't born of a virgin, salvation issue, because the Bible clearly teaches that. Yeah, Anything every that the word Bible... is God breathed, right? So, yeah, so, so I don't treat old Earth, or I don't treat young Earth creationism or the six thousand year old Earth and universe that's taught by the Bible any differently than anything else that the Bible clearly teaches. The problem I'm discovering over time is that people have been conditioned to be very selective about which biblical teachings that are clearly taught are salvation issues and which are not. And they're actually being conditioned to say that there are some issues that the Bible clearly teaches on that are not salvation issues, even though the Bible teaches those things just as clearly as the other things that we say are salvation issues. And when you look at the logical format I put it into in that recent video I did, you can't deny the logic unless you're able to disprove one or more of the premises, which young earth creationists can't logically. That's one of the big problems I have with Ken Ham is that he doesn't accept the logical conclusion that flows from the three premises that I got, not just from observation, but also from his own math. He's a man who literally does not accept the logical conclusions of his own teachings. And that's something I don't respect. But, yeah, anything the Bible clearly teaches is a salvation issue. A young earth just happens to be one of many things that the Bible clearly teaches. So if that being said, uh, 
if someone doesn't know about a young earth teaching that the Bible says, and they're an old earther until the day they die, does that affect their salvation issue? Well, Jesus had this wonderful teaching that I am so thankful for. And he taught, I think in the Gospel of Luke, that you're only responsible for what you know. You know, the person who knows much will be beaten with many blows, but the person who knows less will be beaten with fewer blows. In other words, you're held responsible for what you know. So if you believe in Jesus and you believe in the gospel, but you are never aware that the Bible teaches a 6,000-year-old earthen universe and you stay unaware until you die, you're not going to be held responsible for that because you never knew it. But if you are made aware of what the Bible teaches regarding the age of the earth and universe and you reject it for any reason, you're going to be held responsible for that. And that's where it becomes a salvation issue. That's the one great thing about Jesus is that God does not hold us responsible for the things we are ignorant about or we don't know. We're held responsible for what we do know. And I know that other people have asked, well, what about people in other countries who've never even heard of Jesus or the gospel or the Bible and they die that way? Are they automatically going to hell? Because there's some people who would say, yes, they are. But when you take Jesus's teaching into account, you start to question, well, okay, uh, what things do people know by default out of the womb that God will hold them responsible for? And we actually see what those things are in the New Testament. Because in Romans 1, it says that we can tell that God exists and what his attributes are simply by observing the created reality around us. And then I think it's earlier or later in Romans where it says that the laws of God are in the hearts of everyone, regardless of whether they believe or not. It's something that's built into our hearts and into our consciences. So that's why someone's conscience could convict them of things that the Bible would convict them of, even if they're not aware that the Bible convicts them of those things, because God built his laws into our hearts. So basically, there is a baseline for the person who's never heard of Jesus, the gospel, or the Bible's worldview or teachings. And that baseline is whether or not they acknowledge that God exists and that they acknowledge what his attributes are based off of the observed creation. And they'll be held responsible to some degree about whether or not they follow the laws of God that were in their hearts. So I think that's the baseline that God's going to judge those people by. And that's one of the things that makes God one of the most fair and just beings. Actually, he's the most fair and just being that's ever existed and that currently exists is that he doesn't judge everyone by the exact same standard. He judges people by a fair standard, mainly what they know. And so if you know more, you're held responsible for more. If you're you know less, you're held responsible for less, but there is a baseline at the worst case scenario. Let's say that we were to do a show where we had five young earth creationists come in and I were to ask the question, so how old is the earth? And someone says, that's ah, about 7,000 years. And another person says, ah, 9,000, blah, blah, blah. And another person even goes earlier than that. How would I go about knowing which one of them's right, even though they're all young earth creationists? 
I will admit that part does involve some work because there's different methods to how people arrive at the different ages. Because I know there's some people who say that the Earth is 10,000 years old. I ultimately don't have a problem with someone saying that the Earth is like seven to 10,000 years old because that doesn't do one thing to support atheistic evolution or deep time. <laughs> but uh, basically, I the way I understand it is that there's well, some things in the... Technically, TTOR, even if uh, someone were to come in here and say, I'm young Earth, but I believe the Earth is 100,000 years, that still wouldn't be enough for evolution. You could throw one million onto it, and it still wouldn't work for their time frame. But go ahead. Yeah, so anyway, uh, it, the, the ages that people come to, the calculations are based on either whether they only use the Bible, which if you only use the Bible, you're going to get around... 6,193 years, roughly, you know, from current moment to the beginning. Or if you go with Bible, but then you assume that there's all these missing people in the genealogies in the Old Testament, uh, even if you fill in those gaps that allegedly are there with people, that only adds up another 4,000 years, roughly. So that's how the different young earth people can say, you know, well, I say it's 6,000. Well, I say it's 7,000. I say it's 10,000. That's the difference between the numbers. It, it's basically dependent upon whether or not they just go with the biblical data as is, or they posit that there are gaps and they attempt to fill those gaps with real data. And then that real data ends up adding another 4,000 years. So that's, that's where the different uh, age ranges come from in the young earth camp. Well, basically, the point that I was making whenever I brought that up, that even if you had five different young Earth creationists, and they all believe it's somewhere between zero to 10,000 years old, if if uh, one of them is close, but the other four are absolutely off, is that going to be a salvation issue for them? And they're already in the same wagon. Yeah, I wouldn't put anyone... <laughs> in the 10,000 and below club uh, in the danger list for salvation. Um, like I said, it depends on if you want to fill those gaps that allegedly exists, exist in the genealogies or not. I don't think the gaps are there. So that's why I come with the 6,000 number I do. But yeah, even if you fill the gaps, it doesn't add nearly enough time for any kind of deep time evolution plausibility to exist so i i don't exact i don't judge those people at all for coming up with these slightly higher numbers that they do i know a young earth creationist who's actually uh one of the few that teaches that the days of creation were actually shorter than the days we experience today uh their theory is that the days of creation were somewhere between 15 to 17 hours long and basically, his logic was that over the last 6,000 years, the law of entropy, among other things, has caused the rotation of the Earth to slow down to the point where today it takes, uh, you know, 24 hours for the Earth to do its full, you know, spin, rotation around the sun, instead of 15, 17 hours like it allegedly happened at the beginning. Yeah, there's. I've for, seen some videos out there where not only do people are claiming, even scientists are claiming the Earth is slows down like so uh, incremental and all that, but they also stated that the way the sun, the Earth is going around the sun and all that, and the um, 
in the Milky Way, it's it's also slowing down as well, but spreading right. out due to the right. Big Bang and expansion. So, I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of time stakes here. You know what I mean? Yeah, I get it. Um, oh, I was just I lost my train of thought. <laughs> well, I'll try to remind you. We were we were talking about people that are guessing the estimate between ten thousand years, and then we talked about some people out there who view that the Earth has slowed down. Oh yeah, that's it. That's now I remember. Uh, I was going to say only that uh, the guy that I know who I used to talk with back in the day and. I have his book where he outlines all his theories. Uh, I find his theory about the earth being a fifth, a day on the earth being 15 to 17 hours long for the days of creation. I found that theory plausible because law of entropy is a real thing and it affects everything in this reality. So there's no doubt it would affect the spin of the earth and cause it to slow down over time. But ultimately, even if it wasn't plausible, I don't really have a problem with the theory itself because it doesn't really do anything to support deep time, atheism, evolution, or anything similar to those three things. It's just, you know, an alternative theory about how long the days of creation were. Because I've seen this guy and like the traditional young earth creationists who believe that the days of creation have always been 24 hours long, even on the first six days. Uh they had some really heated debates in the past on the internet about that, which I just found a little bit silly because, you know, it doesn't matter which one's true because neither one of them support deep time in any way. So yeah, I'm not like a super, uh, I'm not like a super militant person as far as theories go. I know another problem that creationists have is those who create like their own theories about how certain events in the Bible went down, like the flood of Noah. A lot of people like that will get married to their theories, and then they start equating their theories to Bible doctrine. And when people dissent from their theories, that's when they start the heresy charges where they question people's salvation. And I always resolved never to be that kind of person that if I was going to accuse someone of being a heretic based on something they say about the Bible, I want to make sure the Bible actually said that before I would accuse them of something. And when it comes to the flood of Noah, the Bible tells us what happened, but it doesn't give us any, well, it doesn't give us many details on the mechanisms behind it. So I'm content to let the young earth creationism community come up with all the flood mechanism theories they want to. And I'm not going to consider any of its salvation issue because the Bible's not clear on it. Notice how I judge things based on whether the Bible's clear or not. <laughs> I hear you, man. I hear you. And I've had a lot of discussions with young earth creationists in the past, and I have asked people to be more specific. It always comes down to what I've noticed is the argument is always the genealogy in the Bible. They say, well, this, okay. this, this, and that. And of course, there's people who are going along with the six days. But the issue is, is whenever you also, you know, you bring God into the equation, God clearly points out several times in the Bible that his time is a lot different than our own. I mean, yeah. he's in, he seems to be in all different places, even in a state of time that we can't even bother to comprehend. He's not linear like we are. Right. And I agree with that completely. The difference, though, is that God himself in Exodus 
specifically told us how long the days of creation were in Exodus 28 through 11, which I'm sure you're familiar with the passage by this point. It's where he's talking to the Israelites and the Moses, and he tells them, you are to work for six days and rest on the seventh because I created the universe, the earth, the sea, and everything that is in those three things over six days and rested on the seventh. So he basically was telling them to do something that he himself did. And the language of that passage is 100% indicative of the days of creation being ordinary days like we experience today. So when that kind of plain, clear language comes from God himself, after God told Moses and Miriam and Aaron that he spoke to Moses clearly and not in riddles when he revealed things to Moses, that's one of those things that lets you know that the days of creation were ordinary days like we experience today because God himself said it. And he told everyone in the Old Testament, by the way, when I spoke to Moses, who wrote all these things that you're reading, I spoke to him in a straightforward manner. I didn't speak in any kind of coded language that he had to reinterpret later and then, you know, ascertain the meaning, write it down and all that. And that's what I also appreciate about God is he didn't have to make things clear for us at all. He could have been ambiguous as to the origins of our earth and universe. He didn't have to tell us how long ago he made the earth and universe or how long it took or by what process it was, which was the speech of his mouth, according to the Old Testament. He didn't have to do any of that. And yet he chose to. And since he chose to, I assume that it's an important enough thing to consider and talk about and hold on to if he thought it was important enough to talk about in any way, shape, or form. This next question I have may uh, come off kind of weird. It's going to be difficult, challenging on how to articulate this, but um, obviously the Bible says in the beginning and God starts doing this creation of the universe and the, the worlds and all this and life, but uh, God would have existed in a state of eternity before the universe and time began, right? Right. So whenever he speaks of in the beginning, he's literally talking about the beginning of the creation process. I'm not sure how a religious person or a spiritual person could put a time frame on a being that lives in eternity outside of time. But do you think that God, if if we were to like speculate a little bit, if you're cool with that, do you think God existed for a while before he started creating, before that beginning of time started, or was it immediate? Uh, not a clue. I mean, he had to exist before reality did in order to make it. So that's pretty obvious. But as far as how long he was around before he decided to create the earth and universe, eh, I, I couldn't answer that for you. Bible gives you zero information on that. But that would be a great question to ask him yourself when you get to heaven. Because that, that's something that only he knows. And he chose not to reveal it to us at this time. So to me, that's just one of those ask God in heaven questions. <laughs> I hear you there. There's a lot of stuff I'll be having conversations with him. As long as he finds me worthy enough to get up there. I'm not as uh, non-humble as some people where they think they got a full guarantee on that. I know I can be a creep sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I know that feeling. I know that feeling. 
but anyway, I'm basically out of time, so I need to wrap this up and get dinner and move on to some other stuff before I go to bed tonight. But thank you for having me on the show, Brett, and thank you for letting me host things for these last couple hours. Well, if you come up with any more topics or anything like that, I'm more than happy to hand over the reins and let you put something out there. I think that we've covered a lot of really interesting topics that may help some people out there or get people at least thinking. That's what's important, you know, to grab the heart and say, hey, it was a pleasure <laughs> having you here, TTR. I'll keep watching your videos and checking it out. I'll be looking out for that other video. If it takes you a while to get it together, there won't be no resentment. I understand you're a very busy man getting your life together and all that. Yep. Yeah, when you're producing media for another organization as a full-time job, doing it on the side for your own self is a little bit different. There's not the same opportunity or you're just burned out on the same actions a little bit. But I will find a way and persevere because I have not gotten any indication from God that he wants me to stop doing TTOR. Um, before we leave, uh, I forgot to say congratulations on reaching 500 subs on your channel, Brett. Uh, probably 90% of them want to stone me to death. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. There's some good yeah. people out there. Yep, hopefully you get to a 1,000 sooner than you got to 500, and then you can start enabling those uh, chat donations. Well, uh, TTOR, I, I kind of don't even, I used to think about that kind of stuff in the past. I used to think, you know, if I get to this goal, I can do this, I can do this. Nowadays, I just kind of let it fly, and I wake up and wonder, is my page even going to still be there? That's pretty right. much where my thoughts are. And if it is, and I say, well, maybe we'll make a video today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know that feeling. Paul Joseph Watson said the same kind of thing years ago when the big tech censorship stuff was really starting to go off. Plus, the, another thing, too, because of my personal experiences with social media, when I look at the numbers, they don't, um, I, I don't want to sound like an ass by saying this, but the numbers don't impress me anymore. What makes me happy and what keeps me going is being able to have these great conversations with guys like you. Looking at numbers, it's just math that can go away in a matter of seconds, but friendship, it's forever. Mm -hmm. Yep, I agree with that completely. And with that, I bid all you guys farewell, and I'll let Brett transition us out. See you next time.
Hello, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Brett Keen from God TV Radio. I hope you're all having a blessed day. If you would like to support God TV Radio, you can do a one-time donation through PayPal, or you can buy us a gift off of Amazon wish list, or you can buy one of my books. Afterlife Simulation is the newest installment of my novels and written works, or you could buy some of our music and art. Also, I sell merchandise such as t-shirts, mugs, towels, clothes, apparel, anything that your heart desires. God bless.